Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Babylon 5 versus Deep Space 9. Uh, just so everyone knows, you can follow us on Twitter at B5VSDS9. Uh, for show notes, you can subscribe to our Substack at B5VSDS9.substack.com. We're available on all major and most minor podcatchers. Please like and subscribe on your podcatcher of choice. If you have a question about either Babylon 5, DS9, this show, or anything else you'd like us to tackle, then leave a five-star review on Apple Podcast or another podcatcher. Take a screenshot of your five-star review and email the screenshot and your question to us at noticeapatternb5vsds9 at gmail.com, and we will answer your question on the show. We plan to start a Patreon with bonus content in the near future. If you have any ideas of material or stuff you'd like us to cover for bonus episodes, please email us at, again, b5vsds9 at gmail.com. Welcome back to Babylon 5 versus Deep Space 9. This is Bob from Cascadia. I got Matt from the Southland on the line. How are you doing today, Matt? Doing pretty good. It's a Sunday morning. Uh, it's pretty nice outside here, and I got a nice tall glass of sweet tea, so I think we're good to go. Nice, nice. Well, to fit the regional theme, I'm, I'm in the Northwest. It's not light yet, and my uh, tea has gone cold. So... <laughs> All right, so we're uh, here to talk um, episode two of Babylon 5, season one, Soul Hunter, that uh, aired on February 2nd, 1993, and we'll also be talking um, the episode Q-less of season one, Deep Space Nine, which I believe is episode seven. Yeah, I'm almost positive it's episode seven, but don't quote me on that, and that aired uh, on February the 6th, 1993. Uh, so, Matt, do you want to lead off and uh, walk us through the A-plot of Soul Hunter? There's a member of this mysterious and hated alien race that are known as the Soul Hunters. They come to Babylon 5 to uh, collect an important person's soul after their death. In the process, they provoke some small revelations about Ambassador Lynn and Mimbari culture. Um, the interesting thing about this is we really don't know, at the beginning, we really don't know who the Soul Hunter is coming for. It just slowly develops so you find out that it's actually the win. Yeah, yeah. It's one of those interesting kind of techniques. I think you see a lot in Babylon 5 or a lot of in science fiction in general where it's like there's this mysterious and hated alien race and it's like every other species seems to know about them, but humans are unaware. And so it's a sort of interesting trope. And I guess before we get into the B-plot, I, I did want to kind of go ahead and ask you um, – and you know, this is at the risk of a little bit of spoilers, but we're kind of seeing this slow drip of revelations about the Minbari. You know, we have the rogue Minbari at the end of the gathering telling Sinclair there's a hole in his mind. Um, 
we have the soul hunter during the climax of this episode screaming at Sinclair that they, meaning the Minbari, are using you. And then we also have the hunter revealing to Sinclair that Delenn is actually a Satai, which is a, the Minbari term for a member of the ruling council, the Grey Council. So I was kind of, I was kind of wondering, what, do, what, do, what are you thinking about this kind of slow drip of revelations? I caught on to a lot more of this uh, in this particular episode. Uh, this was very, this episode was very uh, focused on Delenn. Um, I think that. I got a better understanding of her character. She's not just simply an ambassador. There's probably something more to her. Uh, I felt like at one point, I believe the soul hunter says that you're a leader playing an ambassador or something like that to that nature. I just felt like I learned more about the wind through this episode than I have any others. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess it is sort of like her first spotlight episode because the, the uh, both the TV movie and Midnight on the Firing Line, the first episode of the show, they seem to more center the conflict between Jakar and uh, and Londo. And um, I, are, were Jakar and Londo even in this episode? They, they weren't. They don't show they up at all. Neither does Vosh. Vosh not showing up is not, or rather, Kosh not showing up is uh, not oh, in. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we're we're using already using talking about Kosh with Kosh. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, Kosh showing up uh, is not uncommon during the course of the of uh, the series. Yeah, usually I feel like maybe maybe <laughs> we'll disprove this, but usually it feels like Jakar, Londo, and Delenn are in most episodes. So it's kind of yeah, kind of interesting. But it just kind of shows the the sort of flexibility of Babylon Five, which seems a lot more willing to not have characters appear if they're not relevant to a given episode. We sort of you know, Talia Winters doesn't show up in this one either. And, um, you know, obviously there's some Star Trek and some Deep Space Nine episodes where characters don't show up, but on the whole, you, you tend to see most characters in most episodes. Uh, at the very end of the episode, uh, Delenn says to Sinclair, you know, we were right about you, which mm. just adds more mystery to something. I, I don't know what it is at this point, but um, I'm assuming there's some connection there between Delenn and Sinclair that we haven't explored yet yeah yeah no that's a that, that's a good catch I didn't, I didn't i didn't catch that but yeah definitely that's a good, that's another kind of part of this slow drip of revelations uh it is interesting that and i'll, I'll try to be vague here but as far as i know i might be wrong about this but i i don't think the soul hunters ever show up in a regular episode of babylon 5 again so i think like uh sinclair's line to like the the second soul hunter at the end that Babylon five is off limits. It, it, it holds for a long time, at least. Although one of the final TV movies about Babylon five is called the river of souls. And uh, as the title implies, I, I think the soul hunters do have a role in that TV movie, but unless I'm mistaken, I don't think they show up in the series again. Uh, moving, moving into the B plot, this kind of touches on that. Uh, tell us a little bit about Dr. Franklin. He didn't have much of a, he didn't have a huge role in this episode. He is introduced to us. Kind of in accordance with what we were saying about Babylon 5, not using characters unless they're needed, even main characters. You, you kind of feel like he maybe wouldn't have been in this episode at all, except for the fact that we were being introduced to him. But yeah, we get introduced to uh, Dr. Franklin and, um, and we, we see him meet a few of his colleagues. We see him meet Garibaldi and uh, Sinclair and Ivanova. And then we have to see him deal with a couple of medical issues related to the arrivals of the Soul Hunter. There were a couple things I didn't want to 
flag about Franklin. Um, one was uh, like uh, like our prior doctor um, played by Johnny Seska in The Gathering. Uh, Franklin is you know some sort of like a xenobiologist or xenomedical specialist, and he's so he, he seems to be like a generalist in alien anatomies, and it does continue to be a big plot focus of this episode and the gathering about like the different alien biologies and how that's a real challenge. And then another thing was kind of a small uh, detail that I liked is that he arrives on the ship Asimov at the beginning, which is a nice little homage to Isaac Asimov. He's one of the great uh, U.S. science fiction writers. He wrote uh, the Robot Trilogy and the Foundation Trilogy. Uh, interestingly, uh, before Asimov's parents brought him to the U.S., he was uh, a Russian Jew, rather like uh, Commander of. Uh, Ivanova. So Matt, what, what did you think of Dr. Franklin? I mean, we don't see much of him, but do you have any thoughts on him or in comparison with uh, uh, the doctor played by Johnny Seska from uh, The Gathering? I didn't, I mean, I didn't see much of him, honestly. He does go straight to work, though. I give him that. Like, he shows up the same day, and then the Soul Hunters are there, and he has to, he has to work on him, and then he has to also uh, heal the guy that was, uh, that was killed. Uh, yeah. the, uh, from from is it down below? Is that what it's called? Yeah, yeah, down below is what it's called. Yeah, and this is our first exposure to that area of the station. I was uh, I thought it was strange that there's like a homeless area of or, or a poor district on the, within Babylon Five. Yeah, d- does that has that already been explained, or is the explanation forthcoming? Do you remember? I kind of get lost on what I've seen. Yeah, that's okay. the first time I've seen it, honestly. Like, I just, when I saw it, I was like, what on earth? Where are they at? And then I'm like, oh, they're actually on the station. Okay. That, is there a reasoning behind that? There is. There is. And it'll, it, it should be revealed in an episode or two. I think it's revealed okay. pretty early on. But, um, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, we'll, we'll look forward to that. Um, did, did you have any, any final points about Soul Hunter before we transition over to Cubeless? I, I had like one other thing I wanted to flag. I'm, uh, I'm pretty much Soul Hunter. We've got it covered. I think we're good. Yeah, yeah. So the only other thing I would I would flag, um, and, you know, I, I, don't, I don't particularly like love the Soul Hunter as like a, a concept for an alien species or as a character. I, I didn't find him that particularly interesting but he does have a line to dr franklin i think that's yeah something to the effect of if you could only see and granted it's a kind of that that if you could only see is a kind of common line or you know it's a line you can imagine someone saying but it, it kind of felt to me like a pale echo or a pale reflection of uh, Roy Batty, played by Rutger Hauer in Blade Runner. He has a famous line, uh, Chew, if only you could see what I've seen with your eyes. And uh, later in the climax of Blade Runner from 1981, uh, Roy Batty, played by Rutger Hauer, expands on that motif of seeing a little bit. So, that, you know, that's one of the best lines in a science fiction film of all time. And, you know, it's gotten sampled a lot in different sorts of like dance music and electronic music. So it's just, it was just kind of an interesting connection. Did you want to yeah. walk us? Oh, go ahead. Well, when, you, when you mentioned when you mentioned that, I thought I, that song pops in my head. Uh, for it was night. It was from nineteen ninety six. It was an artist on his tonic. I'm probably a one hit wonder, but that if you could only <laughs> see, if you could. Oh God! Thanks for totally it. ruining it. <laughs> You're welcome. You're welcome. Maybe they were maybe they were watching Soul Hunter and it came to their it, it inspired them. Well, all right. I don't know. Soul Hunter, it, it can be ruined, but uh, the the implication of that of that pop song with Blade Runner does does kind of tarnish my love for Blade Runner. <laughs> All right, uh, did you want right, to so walk us cool. through the uh, a plot of uh, Q-less, which is uh, season one, episode seven of Deep Space Nine? 
Yeah, let's talk Qless. Um, there's some technological problems going on on the uh, on Deep Space Nine. The power keeps going out in different sectors of the station. There was a problem on one of the runabouts where Dax and uh, some other beings were trapped on on it was uh, the runabout was called Ganges, by the way. And uh, there's a, they're afraid that the station is actually going to be tossed into the wormhole. Q though shows up out of nowhere along with uh, Vash, who we last saw in Star Trek: The Next Generation. Uh, the episode was called Cupid. It was the one where they dressed up like Robin Hood in the Cupid. Cupid, Cupid, yeah, Cupid. And uh, that was the last time we saw Vash. She's she's there as well. Uh, they're trying to put the blame on Q, but as the episode progresses, you learn that Q really has nothing to do with it. It's just uh, it's something that Vash has in her possession that's causing this problem. And you know they all work together to solve it and figure out what happened. Yeah, yeah, it was sort of interesting. I, I kind of said in my notes that I got um, Encounter with Farpoint vibes off this episode, which, uh, if folks don't know, was the pilot of Star Trek The Next Generation. And it was a sort of similar setup where there was a mysterious life form that was caught, you know, threatening the integrity of a starbase. You know, both Captain Picard in Encounter at Farpoint and Captain Sisko in Qless initially assume that Q is to blame because he's kind of showing up and taunting them about the mystery. But then right. it kind of works out that it's not, you know, in neither case is Q responsible. It's this new form of life. And then the revelation of the new form of life at the end of uh, Qless, yeah, it, even though the design is different from the alien at the end of Encounter at Farpoint, it, it does give you kind of big big vibes of that i felt like all right and the whole reasoning behind q being on the station is just to convince bash to go along with him and not you know he really has no reason to be at the deep, deep space night other than uh bash yeah yeah it's interesting because like an encounter at Farpoint, like you know q is specifically there to like judge the human race as a whole through like how right. the enterprise performs in this mystery and they, they even go back to that in the next generation series finale all good things but here it's much more mundane he's just trying to get his girlfriend back one of the really interesting things though is that we have these characters that were established in the next generation are now in ds9 uh, kind of continuing that trend of bring over uh, building building a universe within two separate television shows you're on air at the same time yeah yeah and partly that's a result of our selection bias because we did episodes one and one and two the emissary and then we did episode three uh past prologue and now we've jumped to episode seven and um in all four of those episodes you have not just chief o'brien but other characters who actually appeared on the next generation so lursa and Bator in episode three past prologue uh, Picard himself in the emissary two-parter and then now you have both Vash and Q and so it, it's a little bit of a product of our self-selection but it, it is interesting how much um, Deep Space Nine is leaning on characters from the next generation at this early point in its run. You were, you were talking about the name of the shuttle on uh, Babylon 5 that brought Franklin the, the Ganges no, no, the, the Asimov is the one that brought Franklin to Babylon 5, and the Ganges right. is the name of the runabout. The Ganges, though, the, the only, I mean, other than just being the name of the river, there's no real, there's nothing behind that, right? Yeah, no, it's just all, all the runabouts are named after rivers. You I got the, 
you got their Rio Grande, the Rio Grande and the Yangtze Kiang. And then I think the Yangtze Kiang gets destroyed, but I don't remember what the replacement is. And they're well, called the, little, the runabouts are Danny class runabouts. So all, all rivers. The thing you know, Star, just went over my head, Bob. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Glad to help. Glad to help. Yeah, okay. That makes sense then. All right. One other thing I would frame really briefly before we keep moving was even though like we're saying that uh, DS9 is kind of very much operating under the shadow of TNG uh, of next gen, they, they are really aggressively trying to escape that in this episode, right? Because we have the sort of Cisco and uh, Q relationship is played in a very different way than the Picard and the Q relationship is and kind of famously climaxes in a boxing match where uh, Cisco like gives a uh, Q a pretty, pretty mean one, two and Q kind of famously yells, Picard never hit me. And Cisco yeah. kind of yells back, I'm not Picard. Cisco flat out just clocks him. He doesn't put up with him at all. Like it, it's, you can tell that Cisco is very different. Uh, has a very different opinion of Q. Although yeah. I'm, I'm curious, and I think we, we discussed this a little bit prior, but Cisco has never met Q before, but has the reports on Q from the Enterprise. So he knows already kind of what Q, what Q, Q's motives are. I guess yeah, exactly what he yeah. Does. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. So it's like yeah. he's he's operating a little bit with the benefit of Picard's experience because if this were the first time Q was meeting humanity, you know, it seems pretty likely that Cisco would not slug Q, but since he knows about the more trickstery things that Q has gotten up to in the late seasons of next generation, I think he feels freer to, uh, to just uh, wallop him. The interesting thing too, uh, before we go, move on, just, Wanted to point out that looking at both of these episodes, Babylon 5 and DS9, the Soul Hunters are considered immortal, correct? I don't, I didn't get that, but I maybe I missed it. I think they are. I, I read I read it somewhere, or maybe they mentioned it during the episode, but I did mark it in my notes. But also Q is immortal, so it's like they both have these immortal beings visiting their stations uh, huh. I, and I handle mean, things very differently. I, I kind of have to say though, as a as a storytelling device, I don't I don't think that makes much sense in Babylon Five, just because like the whole gimmick of the Soul Hunters is that they're trying to like you know overcome the the finitude of death and they're trying to preserve these souls after death. And so I guess you could make an argument that like okay, they they themselves don't don't in the normal course of their existence experience death, and so maybe that's why they regard death as so horrific, but. On the other hand, it's like, given that they don't die, that if that's right, that just, I don't know, that just seems to kind of undercut their gimmick for me, like on a kind of like aesthetic. Apparently they live, okay, looking it up, they live for, they live upwards of a thousand, they live for thousands of years. Okay, okay. So then, I mean, they may as well be, I mean. Yeah. I guess. Well, and they, they do make a big point about like stressing human lifespan in the episode, right? There's that scene where Ivanova and Franklin are <clears throat> sending the, uh, the casket of the poor man into the sun of the station or into the sun of the system that Babylon 5 is in. And, you know, they kind of have a conversation about how, you know, the human lifespan at this point in history is about 100 years. And Ivanova being a Russian pessimist is like, well, even if we lived for 200 years, we would still just be human. So uh, you want to talk about B-plot for DS9? 
yeah, yeah. So we've got uh, Q's ex-girlfriend, who's also Picard's ex-girlfriend uh, from The Next Generation, uh, Vash, uh, an, an archaeologist and a thief. And she's arranging an auction with Quark uh, to sell her stolen relics from the Gamma Quadrant that she got while uh, caravanting around with Q. So do you think uh, Vash going with Q was a step up from Picard? <laughs> Picard? <laughs> well, I mean, if you... Uh, if you take the uh, the subtext people see between Picard and Q seriously, then it's sort of uh, Q's way of getting back at uh, Picard for uh, for not for not reciprocating his uh, romantic interest. Um, but it, but it is sort of interesting. I, I haven't watched the I haven't watched the episode Cupid in a long time, um, which is the one where Q transports the next Shin crew to uh, you know a replica of Sherwood Forest and they have an adventure right. and it ends with Vash and Q going off together. But I, I haven't watched that in a long time, but I, it does seem like Q dating Picard's ex is a sort of way of, you know, kind of needling him, even if you don't read a romantic subtext between Q and Picard. One odd thing too with, with, with Vash is uh, the scene where she performs uh, Umax, Umax, I guess they're right, Umax on a quark. That was very odd. I don't know how I felt about that. <laughs> it, felt, it felt dirty. It really did. It felt dirty. Like, I watched it. I'm like, this is not okay. Yeah. I mean, I think part of it is like the way that Armin Shimmerman as Quark like played up receiving it. Like yes. yeah, that that really added to it. I thought I I thought it was delightful, um, especially the way like she was strategically intensifying and then and then slowing her stroking of his ears and then you know stop she immediately stops once the deal is done I, I just thought that was deeply hilarious um i i did think the episode did some interesting things about uh constructing like romantic triangles and constructing parallels between characters so like one interesting thing is that we've already seen a little on the show that both Quark and Dr. Bashir are interested in Jadzia Dax. Like, you know, they both think she's very attractive. They're both potentially romantically interested in her. And, you know, Bashir in particular has been pursuing her pretty heavily. And then we, we sort of have that romantic triangle replicated again, where both Bashir and Quark seem very interested in Bash. But, uh, you know, Quark wins out, although, you know, partly he wins out because, um, of Q's interference and putting Bashir to sleep for most of the rest of the episode. Yeah, Bashir's um, pretty much like a hopeless romantic in this series, I've noticed already. He just, like, even the beginning of the episode where he's trying to, uh, he's flirting with the Bajoran. Yeah. And yeah. he tells her about the medical exam that he took and how he like got the answers right just in time. Like, <laughs> and that's just like, it's like he doesn't have, he doesn't have, he doesn't have much game, but he likes to flirt with every woman on the station. Yeah, yeah. You, you say hopeless romantic. I, I would say I would say more say like a shameless flirt and perpetually striking out. Um, yeah. Although yeah. the weird the weird thing is the medical school exam stories do seem to be uh, do seem to be moving that Bajoran girl. She she seems to be well, into she was it. excited about it. Yeah, which she was I mean, happy though that he was a, a salutatory and not a valedictorian though. <laughs> That yeah, which I mean, I, I just can't imagine anyone ever being interested in someone's uh, someone's academic standing. That's horrific. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, we, I, I, you know, I, I, I maybe maybe her interest in the story is just a pretext. But yeah, it is interesting that like, on the one hand, we keep having uh, Bashir striking out with 
women like Dax and Vash and even this, this Bajoran woman. And then on the other hand, we have the, we have the specter of plain and simple Garrick, uh, you know, always over his shoulder. So that, that's a sort of a funny parallel. One, another parallel that I thought was sort of interesting was that you sort of mirror in this episode Q and Vash's relationship and Odo and Quark's like but you know both Vash and Quark are going all in on this auction on these stolen archaeological relics and both Q and Odo have a lot of contempt for what uh, Vash and Quark are doing and you know they kind of they both both uh, Q and Odo have like explicit condemnations of like the crass commercialism of selling these items so I, right. I don't know i just thought that was a kind of really interesting parallel that put q and odo uh on on sort of the same level um i did want to ask did did you enjoy vash on the episode as much as i did because like i really enjoyed her and i'm kind of sad this is basically the last time she shows up in star trek right it is the last time yeah i, I enjoyed her character it's it just having that whole uh and being an archaeologist, being there as someone who's not Starfleet, that perspective, she's there for money. Uh, her whole characterization piece, too, just is having the connection to Q. There's just a lot of character there that I feel like they could have they could expand they could have expanded on had she been in more episodes. Yeah, yeah, and that way she's almost like the role Harry Mudd plays in like the original yeah. series or in Disco, but not as not as like creepy or as overtly Correct. violent as Harry Mud can be. I didn't even I did not make that connection, but that is absolutely true. She is like the Harry Mud of, of yeah. It just kind of seems a shame because I mean like the because you have that you have the thing at the end where Vash seems to like no this was her last job she wants a quiet life back in academic archaeology on Earth uh, she's booked passage and then kind of as a parting thing Q tells her why he valued spending time with her like he. He, va- he valued seeing, you know, the things he's already seen before, but through her eyes and seeing her sense of wonder. Then he leaves and that sort of, that sort of explanation or confession from Q sort of inspires her to uh, go back to, you know, stealing relics and exploring the galaxy. And yeah, I mean, the way I read the end of the episode was it seems like uh, Vash and Quark are going to continue both their sexual relationship and their thief and fence relationship. But yeah, we Vash. This is the last episode of any Star Trek that Vash is in so far. And um, I was looking on Memory Beta, which is the reference work for like the extended Star Trek universe of like novels and games. And she shows up in a couple places, but not not that much. And honestly, the the plot descriptions don't sound good or promising, or like they kind of fulfill the premise that the potential premise you could have had of like Vash returning to DS Nine a couple of times with more trouble from other different expeditions so I, I don't know it's just it's just a shame apparently the showrunner had thought about bringing Vash back to DS9 in season six according to memory alpha but he just couldn't get get the plot nailed down and so he never wrote it another character too that I you learn a little bit about I learned that Odo was pretty much like a workaholic addicted to his job yeah, yeah. Thing between he and Quirk uh and that he can't really be he, he wasn't interested in the the things Quirk was selling Quirk was selling but like Quirk did offer him a uh, latinum plated bucket <laughs> and, uh, there's just there's just a second there where Odo actually considers it like he, and that, that to me was like wow that's that's he has like the saddest life I just don't know I feel bad for him to, to some degree yeah he does, yeah he does a good job on the station he does a good job I give him that you know, he's, good, <laughs> he's great at what he does but 
Yeah, I, I did watch um, a couple of the episodes that we skipped over uh, last night. And in one of them, uh, Odo confesses to Quark that he, he also just has no, he has and has never had any interest in um, any romantic entanglements. Oh, so, gosh. yeah, yeah but so basically crazy. Odo is both a virgin and, uh, well, I guess Valso, not Incel. Uh, but yeah, yeah it's <laughs> you, you feel bad for the guy. Yeah, it's, it's pretty sad. Any comparisons or anything that we can make between the two episodes that you haven't already mentioned? Yeah. Did, did you have anything more you wanted to say about how the DS9 staff would have handled the Soul Hunter? Yeah, uh, I was kind of thinking about that because uh, we brought up you know some hypotheticals of what would have happened if the Soul Hunter arrived at DS9 and one of the characters there was was meant to die. Um, I feel like they really probably would have worked more as, of a, as a team. Uh trying to figure everything out like we've talked about before every single character on the show appears almost every episode it seems like uh while there are certain episodes that are character centered you always like even i mean even this episode odo's appearance like didn't even need to happen he really didn't have a huge part in the in the episode they brought him in anyway just because they want to make sure that everyone knows those characters are there they're the main characters i feel like they would have come to some conclusion about the soul hunter immediately i don't think they would have kept him on the station uh, as long as uh, Sinclair let him stay on Babylon 5. Yeah, I also don't yeah. think Cisco would have gone out and tried to stop him. I think Cisco would have sent someone else out to, to, to uh, retrieve him. I would, once We talked about this in the last episode as well. Uh, Sinclair goes out to rescue the Soul Hunter. The Soul Hunter ship is about to hit Babylon 5. Sinclair goes out in a ship, grabs onto the Soul Hunter and brings him in. And they're he's like really close to hitting the station and causing like critical damage. Why would the main commander of the ship be the one to go out and do that? Like, why would he not send someone else? Yeah, I mean, I think partly it's just economy of characters. Um, yeah, and like I said, partly it's it does seem like there is a kind of like action movie um, envisionment that they have for Sinclair at the at the start of the series. Like, this is something I kind of noticed as a common trope across um both the gathering and off this episode the soul hunter and it's it's also something ds9 kind of does and at the end of Culus is that kind of plot climax in all three of those episodes is that there's a big station-wide dragnet and it's kind of mm-hmm. been, you know on a tight deadline and under desperate situations but i think you're absolutely right that usually cisco uh, delegates that a lot more to his his staff whereas there's just not as much staff on Babylon 5 at least as like you know like named visible characters to delegate to and so usually at this point it's like Sinclair and Garibaldi like going out together as kind of like buddy cop duo to resolve the action plot. I think too that if the Soul Hunter had arrived at DS9 if there was a character he was targeting, it would probably be Dax. There I, knew, be I thought really about cool that. That makes do. total sense. That makes total there sense. Could be re- yeah, there could be something really cool they could do there with her being like a trill and having so many different, uh, I guess, mul- it's almost like she has multiple souls, I guess you could say, or it, it would be, they'd have to explain it in some way that is, you yeah, know, I, w- I would actually disagree. I would actually disagree a little bit with like multiple souls though, because, and this, this could be influenced by, I'm, I'm currently teaching this novel called uh, memory called empire that sort of deals with a similar idea. It's not exactly the same as the trail symbiote, 
but to me it seems like the idea of the trill is like it's integrated so it's like there's only one soul and that one soul includes the Dak symbiote itself as well as the memories and personalities of Jadzia and Curzon and all the other prior Dax hosts whose names I can't remember. So I, I would almost I mean, think of it as just being like one very special soul that the soul hunter. So, so there, so there you go. See that, that would be a fantastic plot then because then you would have like, okay, this trill within Dax, I'm sorry, this, uh, the, the symbiote within Dax contains m- not multiple souls, but like an expansive soul. that's lasted yeah, for way yeah. longer than others and has seen so much in, in one entity I guess that would be the cool way they could come in and bring bring the soul hunter on. I just I was trying to think of ways you can. I don't think there are any other characters other than if you want to do like Odo and say like he doesn't have a soul or something. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's only, only solids get souls. Sorry, <laughs> yeah, Jeez. Right. yeah, that would be rough. I, I did kind of want to ask: Did you find um, did you find the concept of the soul hunter like useful for like a science fictional universe, or did it it feel a little bit too like? little bit too religious or a little bit too mystical or woo-woo. It, it was super mystical like i mean it was it was beyond when he uh hooks daylin into the machine or whatever that drains their soul mm-hmm. and you know there's blood coming out of her and you see the uh the image of, of i guess her soul was showing up in a little ball or whatever it just it just seemed real weird and a little too much mysticism for my taste for sci-fi but I mean, once yeah. again, that's just my opinion. I'm not like, yeah. I mean, I, I thought it was okay. But uh, another thing too, and this is a little off into the weeds somewhat, but I feel like if you really wanted to prove that DS9 may have copied some from Battle on 5, had they taken the, the thing that was in Vash's box and not actually shown you what it was, but just had the bright light shining out, we would have like concrete evidence right there. <laughs> Although, I mean, that, that was an available trope you know like kiss, right. me De- kiss me deadly did it in the 50s and pulp fiction did it shortly after babylon 5 so it's right you know, it, it's an available trope but yeah right. and we'll, and we'll definitely like talk about people. more stuff as we keep going that it really makes you wonder about where where some of the ds9 content came from because there, there's some other connections that are just kind of uh, kind of mind-boggling that we'll get to yeah. But so it was just mainly it was the cocoon, and then I guess it turns into an alien of some sort, an amoeba thing flows out the space. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, we're not we're not finished with cocoons. Don't you worry, <laughs> a, a, a big cocoon is coming. For a fi- for a final point, maybe to close out on, I just kind of wanted to ask. You said you'd seen uh, some connections or vibes with uh, Twin Peaks, especially Twin Peaks season three, The Return. Um, did you want to expand on those between the Soul Hunter and Twin Peaks? Three? Yeah. This- yeah, the Soul Hunter, the orbs just reminded me of what we saw and what we were able to see in, uh, you know, 20 years later. And was it 20? No, it would be 25. 15 years later. And 25. 20. Good grief. Wow. You're we're right. old, Matt. We're old. Yeah, we're super old. <laughs> All right. Anyway, 25 years later, we see the orbs and similar concept just with the orbs floating. You have the picture of the person within the orb. It just reminded me of that, uh, you know, some of those scenes from Twin Peaks. And also, there's just the creepiness of the Soul Hunter, the way he spoke, mm. reminded me of uh, some of what you hear, you know, in, in the lodge, just the creepiness there. I yeah, that kind of deliberate pacing. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that, would, that was really I would say it. that the Soul Hunter's, like, makeup kind of undercuts that a little for me. Because, like, I think what's, I think the great surrealness of Twin Peaks is, like, 
the fact that you'll have characters who pretty much present as normal, at least in the first two seasons. I mean, you know, they may be dressed funnily or they they may not be body typical, but you pretty much normal seeming characters who are actually spirits and speak in like very strange and paradoxical ways. Whereas when you have uh, somebody in like the soul hunter makeup doing that, to me, it, it maybe drains it a little of the like effective surrealism you get from Twin Peaks. Yeah, you say that, but we had the giant mantis or whatever in the in the Soul Hunter episode that I I don't think comes back. I would hope not. It like a Power Ranger villain. <laughs> You're talking about the merchant. Oh, the uh, the uh, the, the insectoid broker who sell who sells the Soul Hunter the, the sells him the level guy. five clearance. Yeah, yeah um, I think he comes back a couple of times, but I don't. I, I get the sense he might have been a major character, but they decided not to go that way. Um, a friend who's also watching Babylon 5 right now uh, texted me that he got Big Zorak from Space Ghost Energy. Yes, that's exactly who he looks like. I didn't even think, yes, that is, that's exactly who that is. It's like live action uh, Zorak, yes. Did that come out? Okay, hold on. Now we're going to, we're going to make, we got to figure this out. When did Space Ghost Coast to Coast come out? Yeah, Space Ghost Coast, because I mean, Zorak was there before, like the old school shit. Yeah, because the, the Space Ghost cartoon is probably from what, the mid mid or late 60s? 94 is when Space Ghost Coast. Okay, so out. this same, same year as this episode, then. So they, wow. Okay. I did not put that those two things together, but that is true. All right. Yeah. Cool, cool. Well, I think we had a, I think we had a good and broad ranging discussion. We got uh, from, Twin Peaks to Ear Sex to uh, Blade Runner to Space Ghost Coast to Coast. So I think a little, uh, little bit listeners got what they crave. Um, I appreciate you coming on, Matt. This was uh, Bob from the Bob from Cascadia and Matt from the Southland talking B five V D S nine, and we'll see everybody next time. Thanks for listening. And remember, you can follow us on Twitter at B five V S D S nine. Uh, for show notes, subscribe to our Substack, b5vsds9.substack.com. We're available on all major and most minor podcatchers. Please like and subscribe on your podcatcher of choice. If you have a question about either show or anything else you'd like us to tackle, leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or another podcatcher. Take a screenshot, email that screenshot to us with your question at b5vsds9 at gmail.com, and we will answer your question on the show. Uh, we plan to start a Patreon with bonus content in the near future, so if you have any ideas of stuff you'd like to see for bonus episodes, email us at b5vsds9 at gmail.com.